Today in the Economic War Room, one-on-one with retired Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. The far-reaching impact of the congressional IT breach, the threat of U.S. debt on our national security, the growing China threat, the rise of socialism in America, education or indoctrination, the impact of the energy boom. Now, let's join Kevin Freeman in the Economic War Room. Economic War Room. Kevin, it's good to be here with you. Great having you. And congratulations on this show. Thank you very much. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, We've got a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to first off let you tell your story a little bit because it ties into one of the things we're talking about, which is how great America is and the land of opportunity. So, if you wouldn't mind, just share share with us what's your story. Look, um, it's a it's a simple American story of a young kid born and raised in an inner city of Atlanta, Georgia, in the same neighborhood that produced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, my dad was a corporal in World War II. My mom did 25 years civilian service with the Marine Corps headquarters. My older brother was a Marine infantryman in Vietnam. Um, at the age of 15, my dad challenged me to be the first officer in the family, and so I signed up for high school junior ROTC in Atlanta, graduated high school, went on to ROTC at the University of Tennessee and earned my commission along with my degree. 22 years in the military, I, I married an incredible woman who has an MBA and a PhD whose father was a two-tour combat veteran, uh, infantryman in Vietnam, who's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. We have two great daughters. Uh, one is in PA school. Uh, doing her clinical rotations, the other is a senior in college, and, and that's my story. It's a story of uh, that says no matter where you're born, no matter where you come from in America, you can achieve whatever greatness you want. And got, you went on and served in Congress? Yeah, did a little stand up in Congress as well, and I tell folks that I only served the one term because I did what paratroopers do. We piss off everybody up there, and so Republicans or Democrats didn't want me around, but that's okay. You continue to fight for this great nation. Yeah, that's great. Well, that opens up so many questions and so many different areas we can talk about. Uh, Let's start with that with Congress, your time in Congress. There's a couple of things that that recently we had in the war room, uh, the gentleman who broke the story on the Awan brothers. You were in Congress. Tell me, doesn't this strike you as an odd story? Well, of course it does. I mean, my IT, and people pool IT specialists. And there's no way, when I first read this story, I mean, $100,000 for an IT specialist or even more than that, your chief of staff on the House side, they, they don't really make that much more than that. And so that's the first thing that causes you concern. Then the other thing is that when you look and see the folks that these Awan brothers were working with, these were members on, on the Democrat Party side. They had some committees of assignment, Intelligence Committee, House Permit Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, House Armed Services Committee. So these are some interesting individuals that all of a sudden these guys are providing IT support, which meant that they had access to all of their emails and all of their communications. And the fact that uh, this thing has kind of just been brushed to the side, that lets you know that there's a, a certain cover-up that is going on. When you have a person like Representative uh, Wasserman Schultz who was complaining and threatening the Capitol uh, Police for the investigation that they were conducting and 
then demanding, you know, to have her uh, computer back, which is evidence. That lets you know this goes a lot deeper than what people are reporting and talking about. Well, I just, it's hard for me to imagine that my personal email, you know, not as a member of Congress, just as an ordinary citizen, my personal password, email, and all of that would be accessible. What could you do with a congressman if you had access to all that information? Well, you get into whatever they're doing. And, and, and like I said, that means any type of classified information that they may be working on because of the certain committees that they're on. And so to have these individuals who, as far as I know, they're not American citizens, to have that level of access, that's very disconcerting. But then again, when you have someone running to be president of the United States of America that has a private email server that's doing classified information, they're still running around, you know, scot-free, that just tells you that there's two different levels of justice that is uh, happening in the United States of America because as a commissioned officer in my 22 years, if I had made the mistake, uh, because when I was a battalion commander, I had two computer terminals on my desk. One was classified, and that's called Nippernet. The other was I mean, now Cipernet, and that was unclassified. That was the Nippernet. And if I, I made the mistake of doing classified information on the unclassified computer, hey, look, Kevin, I'm done. I'm gone. I'm going to lose my security clearance, and that's the end of my career. What Hillary Clinton did, what you see happening with this AWAN case, this is espionage. This is, you know, a, a gross negligence when it comes to classified information. This is the type of thing that people end up at Fort Leavenworth about. And nothing is happening with this? So you find out, you're in Congress, you're a congressman, you find out that someone has accessed your information, you hired someone on an IT basis. For whatever reason, you picked these people and you found out they were actually abusing their privileges and possibly uh, working for uh, Pakistani intelligence or, or selling secrets or what. What would you do? How would you respond to that? First thing I do is I report them to the Capitol Hill Police. And I, I am the one that initiates an investigation because uh, if you're not doing that, then you're complicit. Uh, and, and that's the, the other question. How much did these members of Congress know that they're not divulging on this, uh, this situation, this, this real uh, violation of our, the class, our classification of information and the, uh, the means by which we're supposed to be caring for that classified information? Yeah. This sounds more like collusion than anything else that we Oh, without hear. a doubt. And, and if you go and you read some intelligence reports, this is something that the Pakistani ISI has kind of a penchant for doing. You know, trying to get in there and, and have plans to have access to information in the political arena and then getting that information out. And again, like I said, when you look at these members that the Awan brothers were working for and providing their uh, IT services, these folks were on uh, the Armed Service Committee and the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. So it, here's a, a question that's the obvious answer, but who was the head of the Democrat National Committee when they were hacked? Well, it was the same person, you know, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And, and so that's, it really is unnerving to me that this is not a top-level story. You know, if you want to talk about a special counsel or any of this type of stuff, this is what they should be looking at. Well, especially when we know that the DNC was somehow IT compromised. Yes. One way or another. And the head of the DNC... And, and they didn't want it to be reported. ...has extraordinarily lax standards for IT security. I believe that to be true. Yeah. So let's talk about some other things in Congress. Sure. Uh, $21 trillion debt. Mm -hmm. 
approaching a trillion dollars annually in deficits. Mm -hmm. What do we do about that? Well, it's unsustainable. And really, when you think about it, if you look at the unfunded liabilities also of the Medicare to Medicaid Social Security, I mean, now you're talking about 80-some-odd trillion, maybe close to 100 trillion, some people have estimated. Uh, and, and when you look at this show that you have, the economic war room, remember it was the former chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, Admiral Mike Mullen, who when asked what's the greatest national security threat to the United States of America, he said it's our debt. Because if we get to the point where we're not even able to, to service the, the things that are most important, the priorities of our federal government, which is to provide for the common defense, sure. then you're going to be in perpetual deficit spending. You're going to be in perpetual debt because you're going to be borrowing money to take care of all these unfunded liabilities and mandates that you have on the mandatory spending side. And we need to have courageous representatives and senators that are up there saying that something has to be done to reform these programs. Why? Because 64% of the federal government's budget is on the mandatory spending side. You know, when you talk about our defense uh, spending, that's only about 17, maybe 18 percent of the overall budget of the United States of America, only about 3.1, 3.2 percent of our GDP. Now, where should the priorities be up there in Washington, D.C.? It should not be getting more people wedded on, you know, federal government subsistence programs. What are the constitutional priorities? What is the government specifically authorized to do by the Constitution? Well, if you look, at, you know, and this is what they do up in Washington, D.C., uh, and I'm just a simple guy. Uh, I understand provide for the common defense. Provide is an active verb. Promote the general welfare. Promote is a, is a passive verb. But yet they have somehow juxtaposed these things, and they believe that they're supposed to be providing for welfare. And so when you look at those major duties and responsibilities under Article One of our Constitution, which is, you know, for the legislative branch, a lot of those things have to deal with our national security. But yet they are not owning up to that. What do they find themselves doing? You know, more food stamps programs. More, more, you know, this, this craziness now about a universal basic income where we're basically just going to give people money for no other reason. Well, who decides who gets the $500 a month, which is something that they're looking at in California and also in Chicago? That's not the role of the federal government. The role of the federal government is to protect us, and, and in protecting us, you have to provide for that common defense. And when I hear people talk about abolishing ICE, what do they want? You know, you don't want to have our borders secure. You want criminal, illegal immigrants, gangs like MS-13 roaming our streets. No, that's a complete violation of your responsibilities there to the federal government. Yeah, the border security is one that's, uh, that's specific to the Constitution, to the federal government. Of course. But if the federal government fails in it, the Constitution even allows a provision for a state to absolutely, protect the Absolutely, and that's one of the key things that you see there. And, and again, that comes back to the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. You know, all those things, those powers not enumerated to the federal government, it falls back to the states and to the uh, individual citizens. So I find it very strange that at a time when you have people that are advocating for us to have clear and open borders, they're also advocating for the individual American not to be able to protect and defend themselves. So this is an incredible abdication of the federal government saying, eh, we don't believe in national sovereignty. Well, the Democrat Party. Eh, we don't believe in, you know, securing our, our streets and whatever. Let's have sanctuary cities and states. But on the other side, Kevin, you're not able to protect yourself and defend yourself. Well, you can't abdicate your most important priorities and responsibilities and then tell me that, oh, 
I'm screwed too. I can't even protect myself because the number one inalienable right that you have, as stated in the Declaration of Independence, is life. Life. It's funny, go around the world, let's talk about China for a second, because you've got a lot of billionaires that have been created in China because they they have a Marxist control philosophy, but they've adopted some capitalist principles aided with a lot of intellectual property theft and a lot of uh, mandated technology transfer and so forth. But uh, their market, the billionaires, they're trying to get their money out, Well, too. absolutely. And the thing that uh, we should have understood is that when China saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, they knew there was an economic collapse. It was not a military collapse. So they figured out, how do we adopt this free market capitalism thing, but we can still stay communist? And two, two important things. When they got control of Hong Kong, the British, you know, turned it back over. And then when they got the uh, most favored uh, nation status for trade, they understood that now is our opportunity. Now is our opportunity to get the West and, and all of these other democratic governments, you know, hooked, sucked into us and these cheap goods that we can sell to them. That's part of the, the, the free market economic system. And now we're starting to see the downfall and the pitfall of that. I mean, they have become elevated as an economic power, but what are they doing with that economic power? They're using it for military uh, advancement. And so that is how, you know, what you have here, the economic war room, is so important because the military teaches you there are four elements to national power, the dime theory, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. And so often we fail to understand that interrelationship. But finally, we have a president that I think gets it. And that's why you see this going after China. It's not just the trade deficit thing, but it's getting them to understand this is not happening anymore. You want to play this game of stealing our intellectual property. You want to play this game of forcing our businesses into these technology transfers. We're going to hit you back. We're going to hit you back harder. We're going to start playing chess and not checkers. And we're going to start having a long-term strategy because China does have that long-term strategy. And when you think about, you know, down here in the, uh, in the South China Sea, you know, 40 to 45 percent of the sea lane of commerce operates through there. And this is where you see them making those man-made islands. This is where you see them intruding on the, you know, the Senkaku Islands or the Scarborough Shoals here with the Philippines because they understand that the means by which a nation really does project and extend its power is not through a, a big army. It's through a navy. It's through a navy. That history has always taught us that. Well, and they're also taking the with the Belt and Road Initiative. Absolutely. They're creating debt traps of nations that do business with them, which I find interesting. I mean, Australia started to complain about this. All of the uh, all the allies of Australia are now espousing Chinese policies. Why? Because they're indebted to the Chinese Absolutely. because they accepted infrastructure. Well, I mean, you think about it. When you talk about the, uh, the One Belt, One Road strategy, you know, look at what they're doing in East Africa, all across here. And look at what they're doing with the Chinese-Pakistan economic corridor. You know, you want to know who's causing a lot of consternation for us in Afghanistan? Chinese. But the Chinese are even looking at, if I can find it, over here, right there building a port in Karachi. Now, where else do you see the Chinese in our own hemisphere? They're running the Panama Canal. Isn't that incredible? Chinese contractors running the, the, this incredible thing that we built. They're building uh, port facilities in the Bahamas. They're building port facilities in Jamaica. They understand this. And if they have you indebted to them, the Bible says the, 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 um, the borrower is slave to the lender. Absolutely. 
But aren't we indebted to China too? And that's the sad thing. That comes back to the, the debt problem and what we said originally, that our greatest national security threat is our debt. The largest asset, or one of the largest assets, financial asset on the foreign books right now is student loans, mm -hmm. monies we've loaned out. I don't see in the Constitution where it says the federal government should be guaranteeing that everybody can borrow money to go to college. No, there's so many other things. I mean, the Export-Import Bank and, and things of this nature. But again, it comes back to not seeing the ability to have policies to set the conditions for Americans to pursue their happiness. Now we're listening to people, they want to create policies to try to guarantee happiness. And so when you hear folks like uh, Bernie Sanders or this young uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, you know, we just want to have free college. Uh, well, that's not my job to pay for someone else to go to college. I have two daughters, and, and my responsibility is to take care of them. But, you know, have the, the, the policies that enable people to go out. I think it's the, uh, the College 529 plan. You know, that's what you need to have, more opportunities for Americans to be able to invest money, non-taxable, non to pay for later, you know, future education opportunities. But you just continue to see the federal government that is expanding their relationship with the individual. And in expanding their relationship with the individual, they're making the individual more subservient, more subjugated to the institution of government because, let's, uh, let's realize, it, it's about power. This is about control. And if you have more people wedded to the government, then the government has an electoral base. And that's what this comes back to. I see two problems with the college. One is if you take the federal loans, it, well, actually, that creates two problems of its own. One is that you're indebted to the government for sure. you know as long as it takes, and probably you owe so much money that no matter how much you earn, you'll never get out from under it. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the second one is is that if you're under that level of debt, you're going to start demanding that there be this free college. Of course, because you want the debt to be relieved. And remember that one of the little tidbits of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was that the federal government nationalized college student loans. Yeah. You don't have that, you know, being able to go to banks. And what did the federal government also do uh, as part of Obamacare? They raised the interest rates. Because why? They just looked at it as a means to generate more revenues for this, you know, free health care thing. And that's where we need people to get back to understanding the blocking and tackling of how our government is supposed to operate and understand civics and understand that relationship between the individual and the government. And, and articulate that in a manner much the same as you're doing here, where the everyday American citizen, I call them Joe and Jane six-pack, yeah. that they can understand it. Yeah, yeah. The second problem is with, with college when it's free it, is that you drive the demand up. Oh, sure. Which, which means that the cost is going to go up. Oh, yeah. And so we, we see college uh, tuition just continually ratcheting well, higher. And look at, look at some of the, the salaries for these tenure professors. Uh, look, Kevin... You know, I, I, I love my university, University of Tennessee. And, but I will tell you that you go on the campus of a lot of these colleges and universities now, they're like five-star resorts. I mean, the Student Athletic Center, you know, it was decent. It was okay. But now it looks like, you know, a, a Gold's Gym or, you know, 24, you know, fitness and everything like that. The whole purpose is to give kids a quality education so that they can go out and be productive members. And so now, all of a sudden, we don't have a system of education. We have a system of indoctrination. Look at all these wacky, you know, degrees or, or you know, gender studies and all of these things yeah. that are there. Their kids are sitting around in, you know, five, six, seven years, you know. I, you, you should not be going and, and just sit around for free for that. How do you make money 
with you wacky don't. degrees. You don't. How do you? So, in other words, you're taking a four or five, six year vacation at a five star resort, and the bills pile up, and you just have to pay out for the rest of your life. Absolutely, and you, and there is no return on that investment. Yeah, to include, you know, the young lady that has an economics degree from Boston University who just won that uh, election there in the Bronx and Brooklyn who is espousing economic principles that make no sense. So what did she do for four years at Boston University? Oh, by the way, she's going to be a congressman. And so when you talk about debt and deficits, if those are the type of people that are winning and getting elected. Well, let's talk about that for a second because it, her example is is uh, perfect. She's a socialist. Yeah, and who about would have ever thought? And, and who would openly, have ever thought that we would be openly discussing representatives in our government that are avowed socialists? Because to me, what you believe in is everything that is antithetical to who we are as a constitutional republic. I, I don't have any problem with you believing or pursuing that. But what you believe in is not consistent with our Constitution. Wealth redistribution is not consistent with our Constitution. Nationalizing economic production is not consistent with our Constitution. Creating and expanding a welfare state is not consistent with our Constitution. Social egalitarianism is not consistent with our Constitution. And it's not consistent with success. It's definitely not Where consistent. in the world has Nowhere. socialism worked? Nowhere. Nowhere. But, but this is the interesting argument. Whenever you talk to them, well, they didn't understand pure socialism. Well, I mean, help me out here. You know, all of you guys were running down there to Venezuela and you were, you know, slapping high fives or Hugo Chavez talking about how great he is. Funny you don't see him going down to Venezuela now that they're eating out of garbage cans. And why Venezuela is so important to me, you know, there you got Caracas right there. Beautiful city. Now, when I was a young lieutenant at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, my artillery tactics instructor when I was, when I was there was from Venezuela, Captain Gonzalez. And he showed us pictures of Venezuela. I mean, we were saying, why didn't the Army have a, a, a military That's base? That's beautiful. Yeah, right here. I mean, one of the most prosperous, most beautiful, you know, you know, countries in Latin America. And now look at what has happened to Venezuela because of socialism, because of Hugo Chavez, because of Nicolas Maduro. And yet, when I was at the University of Tulsa, the son of the head of OPEC, the Venezuelan oil minister at mm -hmm. the time, uh, was attending, getting a petroleum engineering degree. Mm -hmm. Venezuela has the largest reserves of petroleum, proven reserves, yep. on the planet. And what has happened? They nationalized that economic production, and look what, what, what has happened to that country. And also, they made all of these promises about how they were going to redistribute wealth from, from one group and give to another. You know, I live down in uh, Plantation, Florida, down in South Florida, and just west of us is a city called Western Florida. And when you go to Western Florida, you see two flags. You see the American flag, you see the Venezuelan flag. Because all of the producers, all of the people that were, were working hard, they left. They had the means to do so. Now, the question is, as we hear these socialists in America talk, where do we go? Yeah. If America's gone, where can we go? And where does the rest of the world go? So where has it worked? Now, it name a, where, okay, so what, what, about East, what about Europe? No, well, you know what? It's interesting that you're starting to see many of these countries in Europe moving away from it. Look at the, uh, the new, uh, I guess, president, prime minister of, of Italy. They're moving away from this. And I always like it how, you know, the, the progressive socialist left here in the United States of America says that we need to be more like some of the Scandinavian countries. Well, those Scandinavian countries are moving away from it, too. But how can you compare the United States of America 
350 million people to a country of 3.5 million people. I mean, some of these countries that they think uh, we should emulate, they're not even the size of Dallas-Fort Worth. And so, no, this, this is not a successful platform. And as countries, what's their defense budget like? Where do they spend for the common defense, which well, is a legitimate role of government? It is, it is the legitimate role of government. And if you read Frederick Bastiat's The Law, I mean, that's what you know, the government is supposed to do, protect its citizens and not come up with this misconceived philanthropy and this naked greed, which is what you have. Uh, I was stationed over in Europe. That was my first duty assignment. The United States of America provided the security blanket for those European countries. And so those European countries were able to go off on all these social welfare junkets. And I think that's to the credit of President Trump now to come up and say, hey, you know, McFly, yeah. time to pay up. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're not sacrificing. We're not doing this anymore. And, and when he brought up the fact that, you know, Angela Merkel in Germany is sitting down and they're making a deal with Russia to have an oil and gas pipeline, well, how is it that you are telling us, and the United States is really NATO, how is it that you're telling us to be over here to protect you from this bad guy, but you're doing business with this bad guy? Yeah. Why aren't you buying the oil and gas from us? Oh, and oh, by the way, when are you going to pay up that 2% of your GDP for, for NATO defense? But the people that are getting it are the folks in Eastern Europe. Poland gets it. The Baltic states. Because they, they came out of the They oppression. came out of it, yeah. absolutely. And so I think when you talk about where we're looking at economically in, in Europe, I think that you may be seeing a shift from the old Europe, Western Europe, over to Eastern Europe. You know, better security arrangements, better uh, national security uh, deals and military exercises, and better economic trade arrangements as well. Well, when we talk about democratic socialism, which is mostly in the old of Europe, and it, it, whether it is uh, overt, we're democratic socialist, or whether it is just just corruption, you know, like we saw in Greece, and almost took, took Greece down. I, I have a theory, and my, my theory is is that because there's competition, that democratic socialism sort of kind of works at least for a little while. It sort of kind of works. It doesn't work efficiently. It doesn't work effectively. We have to cover their defense budget and, and all of those things. But, but it, it's something you can point to and say, well, look at this quality of life item that they have, you know, whether it's uh, extended paternity leave and maternity leave and all these different things. But it doesn't work where there's no competition. No. And I think Chavez and Venezuela, when he cut out free and fair elections, yes. and he eliminated the Congress, and all those things happened, at that point it just seems to spiral into animal farm. Well, it does, and that's what the left has to have. They have to have ideological domination, and they have to completely eliminate all political opposition. And that's what you see here in the United States of America that has the left so upset. They figured, okay, we, we got the eight years of Obama, and then we'll get the eight years of Hillary Clinton, and then we'll get another eight years of somebody else, all based upon identity politics. First black president, first female president, first you know Hispanic president, first gay president, first whatever type of president. Because no one's going to pay attention to who we are. They're just going to pay attention to this great sugar fix event that we're going to give you. And that's really what socialism is all about. It's a quick sugar fix. It has no ability to sustain itself. So when a Bernie Sanders stands up and says, we're going to provide Medicaid, that's what he was saying, Medicaid for everybody. We're just not, don't worry about that poverty line. We're just going to you know, get rid of that. And everyone's going to be on Medicaid. That's $32.3 trillion. Now, we were just talking about the fact that we're $21 trillion in debt. Right. Now, how are we going to, you know, fund and sustain this thing 
this $32.3 trillion. It's not going to happen. And so we need to better educate the American people. Well, the rich will pay for it, right? Yeah, but who defines what's rich? Yeah, that's the, that's the problem. See, I mean, that's, that's like Lucy with, with Charlie Brown. The football continues to move. Yeah. I mean, rich is not the person with the, the million dollars. I mean, Barack Obama came down and during his administration, it's $250,000. Right. Well, right. that ain't rich. And the taxes would go through the roof well, of course. to pay. And then what happens with economic production? It, it doesn't matter because we're all socialists. It all works. The government will pay for it. We're all a collective. That's the answer. Yeah, yeah we're all a collective. And, and I think that, again, that is the antithesis of who we are. America is about individual sovereignty. But what we are seeing happen are some people that believe that it's about government sovereignty. Remember when Barack Obama said in 2012 in Roanoke, Virginia, if you own a business, you didn't build that. Yeah. So basically what he said to you, Kevin, is that this show that you have created with your own innovation, ingenuity, and w went out and sought investment, you didn't build that. We we'll come in and we'll take over this show, and we'll give you your talking points. That's not freedom. No. That's not liberty. No. What about in, in your personal life? You told us your story, which is an amazing story. What if your dad came to you and said, instead of, I want you to be an officer, you'd be the first officer in the family. He said to you, I want you to go get as much as you can given to you from the system. Well, my dad would have never said that. My mom would have never said that. You know, they were registered Democrats. Uh, John Lewis was my congressional representative there. But my parents were conservative in nature. My parents believed in faith. They believed in family. They believed in individual responsibility. They believed in education. They believed in service to this country. And so my folks, I mean, I can tell you, I never saw my parents go down and, and take out a car loan. You know, if you didn't have the cash to do it, then you don't get it. Uh, and, and if you want it, you can put, remember the old days of layaway? Yeah. <laughs> when you got the money, then you can get it. But you don't go out and, and find yourself owing someone. For, for their generation, that was detestable. That, to, to believe that I have to owe someone, you know? No, no. If you live within your means, you balance your budget, you set the priorities. And that's what we need to get back to. And really, that's what people are doing every single day in their lives. But our federal government is not doing that. Yeah. Well, and part of the problem we have, I think, is the education system. The system education of system. We don't have an education okay. system. Okay. It is a system of indoctrination. Yeah. And what is being indoctrinated? It's the leftist policies. When you look now, I mean, it's getting down into middle schools. Or in some cases, it's getting down into the elementary schools. When, when people are going out there and saying, hey, Kevin, you know, you don't really have to be a boy. You, you can be whatever you want. You know, that, that's, that's, that's something you can decide. Or, you know, I just recently read in, in Europe, they're allowing, you know, sick children to decide that they want to be euthanized. You know, this is nuts. That should not be the, the, the type of thing that we're... It's everything upside down. It's totally. And, and so, so um, Ben Shapiro says, you know, if people say socialism, I like socialism because it's more fair. It's more fair. And Ben Shapiro will say, socialism is economic slavery. It is economic enslavement instead of economic empowerment. And again, you, you know, I remember, you know, using, I was talking to some high school kids, and it was high school football season back down in South Florida. And, I, and they asked me to kind of, you know, explain socialism. I said, okay, this is what socialism is. I said, who's your biggest rival in high school football? They said, North Briar Prep. I said, okay, you guys are playing North Briar Prep. First half, you're up 28 to 7. You go into the, uh, into, the, uh, into the locker room during halftime, but then when you come back out, you look up at the scoreboard and it says 21 to 14. 
And you ask yourselves, what the heck happened? I mean, did the scoreboard break? Well, then the coach gets you all on the sideline, and then he explains it to all your, your parents and your fans. Did someone up in the press box decided the game was a little bit too lopsided? It wasn't fair. So they took a touchdown away from you guys, and they gave it over to North Briar Prep. So now the game is a little bit closer. It's 21-14. You'll start out the, the next half and, and, and because people want to have a little bit more fairness. And those young people said, oh, we don't like that. <laughs> They said, that, that's not right. And I said, why is it not right? They said, because we earned those four it's touchdowns. Immoral. Yeah, we earned those four touchdowns. But you know what was interesting, Kevin? I asked them, so what happens in the second half? And you know what they said? We don't know if we should score because someone may decide to take it away from us. Wow. And that's what happens in a society where you punish the producers. Why should I go out and work hard and produce when I know that someone in the press box is going to take it away from me? Yeah. Yeah, and that's why it's economic enslavement. It is. Because when an individual uh, says, the, the, my labor, the produce of my labor, doesn't belong to me, it belongs to all of society. Yes. What do you want to do with that? Well, that's the thing that Karl Marx talked about. You know, when you have John Locke, who sat down in the Second Treatise of Government and talked about natural rights theory, life, liberty, and property, but then you have Marx that talks about the, the abolition of individual property. And so this is very simple. This is a simple ideological choice that we have. Either you believe in this, this individual ability to go out and have life, liberty, and property, which Thomas Jefferson changed the pursuit of happiness, or you believe that the government is supreme. The government controls the schools. The government controls your life. The government controls your, your attainment of property, everything. The government, you know, completely, uh, you know, takes all of the means of economic production. So who are you really working for? What, what is your whole raison d'etre? What is your whole purpose in life? You don't have a purpose in life other than what someone says, this is what you're allowed to have, which comes back to what Obama said in 2012, that if you own a business, you didn't build that. That was the most disrespectful thing that any president of the United States of America, any person, could say to the American people. And if you didn't build it, you don't have a right to use it. Of course not. Or own it or control it. I mean, think of the insanity for him to say that the only reason you have a business is because the government put the road there or the government had the school. Well, who the heck pays for the roads to be built? Right. And who is the government? Yeah. Who is the government? In, 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 is it the people, which is what the Constitution no, it, says? It, it well, who is the government? Become, it does not become the people. It becomes much like the Soviet Union used to have the Opalit Bureau. And you have a bunch of folks that are making up the political, media, the uh, academic, the entertainment elites, the cultural elites, that they're making all the decisions. You know, I, I was recently on uh, Mark uh, Levin's show, and I said, you got this cut line. You got all these people up there. Then the rest down here, you used to call them Joe Schmuckatelli. Yeah. That's what we call it in the, in the Army. So I don't want to be a Joe Schmuckatelli. I am just as, as important uh, as any of these people that call themselves the elites that believe that they know what's best for my life. Oh, absolutely. But you have this government that exists, their bureaucracy, their media, their education, and they're in power. And they'll do everything they can to retain well, and, their power. And that is why the left is so upset with the election victory of Donald Trump. 
and, and really is, is the, the establishment, the political establishment is upset because he has turned things upside down. And the fact that you see our economic growth, the fact that you see wages on the uptick, the fact that you see more Americans getting back to work, the fact that you see someone is talking about how his country and our citizens are important and everyone has a voice, you know, the forgotten man and woman. That is something that has really steamed the other side. So what do they come out with? Hashtag resistance or, or what have you. And I find it so interesting, Kevin, when you have a group called Antifa that says they're anti-fascist. But yet their whole reason for existence and what they do is to keep you from being able to, to, to have your freedom of speech. Yeah. yeah. We, we talked about uh, the term Nazi is national socialist. That's right. I think these are glotzies. They're global socialists. Yeah. And so it's the same as, as Hitler, only just with a global sure. view. As a but the thing is, if you don't have an education system, if you have a system of indoctrination, they're not learning that, and they're not getting that. And so I think one of the critical places where constitutional conservatism has to see a, a resurgence is on our college and university campuses, in our high schools. And that means we've got to break the control of the teachers' unions and, uh, and what have you. Yes, and, but the opposite is being pushed, and it's being pushed hard. From the education standpoint, we're going to indoctrinate you. Sure. And then when you graduate, we're going to give you money. Not any reasonable amount of money. It's just a tiny bit of money, but you'll be... I you mean crumbs? Yes, crumbs. <laughs> and then we're, but if you want, you can smoke as much pot as you want, and That's you right. can go into any deviancy that you want. And those are the only freedoms that are allowed. You know, we won't allow the, the entrepreneur uh, as a, as a um, uh, young man or woman, you know, uh, boys or girls, to set up a lemonade stand. No. God forbid that they that's would do that. That's economic independence. And you cannot have economic independence. Well, here's the problem for the left. Economic independence, we're in Texas. You're, you're living in Texas. Mm -hmm. We're seeing an energy boom. Yes. that is changing the world. Can you talk about that? Well, without a doubt, and that comes back to the relief of the regulations. I mean, when you have a president that says he wants to destroy, you know, industries so that he can elevate a certain type of agenda, you know, the, the renewables, the wind and the solar. You know, we're getting back to understanding that we have these resources here. And let's use that incredible innovation. Let, let's, let's look at the fracking miracle that we have. And let's make ourselves energy independent. Let's make ourselves a net exporter of these resources. So you can undermine the power of OPEC. You can undermine the influence of, of a Russia. And isn't it great that it is right here in Texas where you have those policies that are saying we're open for business. I mean, look at how many corporations are departing some of these uh, other states, like a California, and they're coming here to Texas because you do have those economic growth policies, the policy of economic empowerment. However, the real danger is that you are having people come into this state that are still holding on to, you know, kind of like Lot's wife. Yeah. You know, so you turn around and look and turn into a pillar of, of salt. And, and they're still looking back at California. They're still looking back at Illinois, New York, and New Jersey. You should come here and understand one simple thing. And, and I think one of the critical things we need to ask people when they're coming to Texas from these other states, why are you here? Because if you don't understand why you are here, then maybe you need to go back and, and you need to figure it out. But you can't come here and, and move, you know, Toyota, State Farm, or whoever, some of these other great uh, corporations. But then the employees say, I still want to be like how I was in California. That's the locust effect. Yeah. 
you know, when you move from one area that you have was once fertile, I mean, California was once, you know, a very different state, and you destroy it, and then you go to Colorado, which was once a very successful state, and then you destroy it, and then you go to Arizona, and now you go to New Mexico, and now you come here to Texas. And, and that's the long-term strategy of the progressive left, is that they are going into successful red states, but they're going into these urban centers. They're going to the major population areas, and they're taking them over. And you see that, Kevin, here in Texas. You see it in Dallas. You see it down the 35 corridor to Austin, to San Antonio, to Houston, to El Paso, to Corpus Christi. All of these major urban centers are being run by people that have a belief system, a, a, a principle of governance that is the opposite of what has made Texas great. And so what we have to do is make sure that we go back in and we got to fight for these city councils. We got to fight for these school boards. We got to fight in these inner, uh, these urban centers, which is where you see the greatest amount of failure of their policy. So it is great that we have, you know, the oil and gas industry coming back. But what happens when all of a sudden the people that are running, uh, the city of Austin become the people that are running the state of Texas? Right. They won't let Austin keep the name. Oh, I'm so crazy about it. Yeah, I talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, and, and if we go into the inner cities and we educate in the inner cities, the problem is, is when you move from the, from the uh, rural environment mm -hmm. where you're responsible for your water, you're responsible, and you move under government services, you get used to it. And so the rural parts of California are actually still very conservative. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The rural parts that. of Illinois, yeah. the rural, you know, yes. it, it, is the, it is the city and the inner city government. I, mm -hmm. I, you may have seen this. Uh, in fact, I may have read this in one of your blogs. Uh, the, the comparison between uh, Detroit and Nagasaki. You know, ni 1945, we drop a bomb. It's you know, arguably the worst city in the world because it's just been irradiated uh, versus Detroit, which was the most prosperous, Boom. best city in yeah. the world. Yeah. And you take different policies. You, you take the MacArthur policies in Japan and you follow freedom and, and you take uh, the left-leaning progressive policies in Detroit. Now we've got the complete opposite. Yeah. Detroit now looks like a war zone. Although it's trying to come back, but, you know, it, it's all about the right type of leadership. And so, you know, I always tell people, when you look at a, I mean, my, my ideological hero is Booker T. Washington. I mean, here's a guy that was born into slavery. But when he became free, he had a quest for one thing, and that was a quality education. And what he did in getting that quality education, then he was tasked to replicate that down south. Now, someone would have thought, you know, how does a person that was born in slavery, you know, create an education institution down south? Look at what he did with Tuskegee Institute. He made it a relevant education. He enabled people to be able to go out and be productive members of society. And that institution still stays. Here's a man that was born in slavery. He hosted a president at his university. Here's a man born into slavery. He visited the White House. And we're talking turn of the century. You know, 1900s. We're not talking about a couple of years ago. So I don't buy into these excuses that you can't. And, and I always tell folks when Barack Obama came out with that saying, yes, we can, he did not mean the individual America. He meant government. Yes, we can. Mm. We can dominate. We can rule your life. We can, you know, all of these things. He had no concern about the, the incredible, indomitable entrepreneurial spirit. This made this, this nation, I mean, it's the model of the world in 200 and what, 42 years? That's a miracle what has happened here in, in the United States of America. But it's a miracle because, as Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about, 
and democracy in America because it's about the liberties that we enjoy. It's about the respect and regard of the individual. And it's not about the institution of government. So again, you know, what we keep coming back to is how do we fix this relationship between the institution of government and the individual? That is what we have to do. Well, I think one of the differences in the Tocqueville saw it is the worship of God versus the worship of the state. You Absolutely. Know, if, if you believe in a higher power that's not the government mm -hmm. and you believe that there's a creator and so forth, it changes your attitude on, on what you do. And part of our education system has been uh, at tearing down any potential for someone to believe in higher power. And that's the importance of what John Locke did. Because John Locke moved away from divine rights theory that said the king and the queen and all these, you know, duke and duchess, they were the ones in control of your life, to natural rights theory. Every single person gets their rights from a creator. And that is why the, one of the preeminent things about progressive socialism, Marxism, communism, whatever you want to call it, is secular humanism. And so when you see people that are saying, you know, God couldn't get, you know, this gender thing right. There's not just male and female. There's 61 others. There's 63 genders. God can get the weather right. It's man-made climate change. I, I remember when people asked me about climate change. I said, yeah, winter, spring, summer, and fall. They said, no, man-made climate. I said, no, no. So, you know, there's a creator, you know, you know that's this got this under control. But what they're doing is they're delegitimizing, they're undermining the sovereignty of the creator. So that all of a sudden, if the creator can't get gender right, if the creator can't get the weather right, then how can he get this thing about inalienable rights, this life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness stuff? He couldn't get that right. We can get it right. We, we're the one that says you have a right to own a home. You have a right to free health care. You have a right to, 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 uh, to, to free college education. We're, we're the grantors of your rights. Not, not this creator guy, because he couldn't get this stuff right. And when we give you the free college education, it really is indoctrination. It really is Absolutely. to get you, because it keeps the people, animal farm people at the top. There's some, some are more, everybody's equal, but some are more equal than yep. others. If you could create, wave a magic wand, how, what would you do to make America uh, the best it could be? I will tell you that, number one, the most important elected position in our country school board. That's where it starts. Uh, because we have got to rebalance this curriculum thing. We've got to get away from this agenda-driven uh, indoctrination that we have in our, and restore a system of education. So I think that's the most important thing. That's what I challenge people to do. And I think the other thing is that we have to have this open challenge to the left. We can't, you know, you know, the reason why they get angry, the reason with the violence, uh, they can only advance what they believe in by mandate, by coercion, by intimidation, by threat, and ultimately by violence. And we need to see that for what it is. The importance of your show here, you know, we need to have more of this out there on a lot of these other mainstream uh, media outlets, but we don't. We just get the shouting back and forth, and no one really does understand and no one really does learn about, you know, the four elements of national power and how economic uh, strength ties into your overall military strength and your diplomatic strength. Uh, and that's the greatness of, of this show, and that's the greatness of what you're doing, and the books that you have written, and also the uh, the seminars that you have held, because this is how this this is education. You know, this is not about indoctrination. And the great thing about uh, economics and tactics in the military is pretty much so black and white. If you do these things with your economy, these principles, you have success. I mean, it goes back to Sun Tzu, which I see you have sitting over there, the art of war. If you don't do these things, you're gonna have failure. 
And when I look at what is happening in the United States of America, it is a very simple uh, discussion between the policies, the principles, the fundamentals that lead to success or the policies, principles, and fundamentals that lead to failure. You know, I'm a college football nut, and, and I'm just so excited that we're about to get back into college football season. Anyone will tell you that college football or football period is based upon two things, blocking and tackling. It's not about, you know, the, the fumble rooskies or whatever kind of, you know, plays you come up with. It's about those two fundamentals. If you don't block, you don't tackle, you don't win football games. If we don't get back to economic restoration, economic growth, economic independence for our citizens, economic empowerment, the opposite is failure. And we want to take, we want to take individuals. All these things are happening complex around the world, and the average person doesn't have a chance to really understand them. Mm -hmm. The media doesn't give them the opportunity. Their education system doesn't give them the opportunity. But all of these have direct personal impacts. It impacts your stock market investments or your pension plan or your bank account. And, you know, times have been pretty good. So people don't think, ah, hey, you know, the bank is fine. But it wasn't that long ago, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, about 10 years ago, in which you'd go to bed on a Friday and you'd wake up uh, Saturday morning and you see in the paper that the name of the bank that you had all your money in has changed. Yeah. Well, think about this. Uh, the 2008 meltdown, that financial crisis, Jimmy Carter, Community Reinvestment Act, everyone has a right to own a home. See, it sounds real good when people say, we're going to give you something, we're going to provide you a right outside of your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that you have, and it always lends to some type of demise. Yeah, that's socialism in action. Yes, it is. It always ends in failure. Well, I appreciate it. Colonel West, thank you so much My for pleasure, coming Ken. in. Thanks for having me. A great me. blessing. You got it.